Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. The previous guy said not too long ago, you want to get rid of COVID? Inject bleach into your vein. What do you have to lose? Hmm. I hope that none of the listeners know anyone who did that. That would have been an unacceptable risk with a lot of downside. How do we evaluate the risks that we take? When is the risk greater than the reward? We have with us today a person who is going to help us understand when throwing a Hail Mary pass has very little downside. William L. Silber, when he was here to talk about his book, Silver, was the former Marcus Nadler Professor of Economics and Finance at NYU, NYU Stern School of Business and was a three-time winner of Professor of the Year at Stern. He was an options trader on the New York Mercantile Exchange. Currently, he is a senior advisor at Cornerstone Research. He is here today to talk about his latest book, The Power of Nothing to Lose, The Hail Mary Effect in Politics, War, and Business. I am very happy to once again welcome Bill Silber to Politics, A Love Story. Hi, Bill. How are you doing, Bob? It's a pleasure to be back. I'm glad you invited me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on because I really like the book. Uh, what prompted you to write it? Um, well, you know, uh, I've been thinking about this book for a long time, like 30 years. Wow. Uh, and it's, while I was, well, yeah, I was teaching uh, a class in investments at the Stern School of Business to about 300 MBA students every year, and the course focused on uh, how to choose investments, uh, stocks, bonds, real estate, and so on. And I quickly recognized that the same principles that apply to choosing investments under uncertainty, risky investments, also apply to generals, presidents, and ordinary people making decisions under risky conditions. And there was a particular result that I was interested in, and that is when people are confronted with downside protection, they tend to take big risks, almost reckless undertakings. And this book? Is about that. And one of the first stories you uh, you bring forth in the book is about football star Aaron Rodgers, who has thrown four times as many touchdown passes as interceptions during his career, a much better ratio than superstar quarterbacks Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. When his team, the Green Bay Packers, trails by a few points in the waning seconds of a game, he often throws his signature Hail Mary pass into the end zone. If a teammate catches the pass for a touchdown, his team wins. If the pass is intercepted or dropped, his team loses. If he didn't try a low-probability pass, he would have lost anyway. The risk was low. The reward was great. That's what you're talking about, isn't it? That's precisely what I'm talking about. The Hail Mary pass is a perfect example of what I call downside protection hmm. and that is the game for Aaron Rodgers is already lost 
So he might as well take a big chance. Why is that? Because the upside has great attraction, and that is he can win the game. The downside, of course, is, all right, he'll add another interception. Believe me, Aaron Rodgers doesn't like interceptions. But in this context, interceptions are meaningless. And be clear, let me be clear, Aaron Rodgers is a very deliberate uh, decision maker. He doesn't take crazy risks, which is why his passes are so accurate. But he becomes a big risk taker at the end of the game when Green Bay is losing. And the reason is his outcomes or his the outcome of the Hail Mary pass is either big upside, a win, or limited downside, a meaningless interception. Or a drop pass, which is also meaningless at that point in the game. That's correct. Another drop pass is no big deal. Uh, one of the things you talk about in the field of politics is that termed-out governors and U.S. presidents have at times pardoned people who should never have been pardoned. Governors Barber and Blanton and Presidents Clinton and Trump, for example. A constitutional amendment to limit a president's pardons would probably not pass, but a clemency review board might work. Um, this is a, a big uh, departure from our normal political situation. For 242 years, presidents have uh, pardoned people. Well, that's true. And the Constitution gives the president unlimited uh, rights for clemency. He doesn't have to uh, explain it to everyone, anyone. He, can, he doesn't have to justify it. And presidents have used that especially when they are in their second term, lame ducks, all the way at the end, when the ballot box no longer constrains them, and they therefore can take great liberties with who they pardon. And this was done across the board. Republicans and Democrats, Bill Clinton pardoned, a number of family members, and, and, and this is something which we see uh, all the time called lame ducks, last-minute pardons, the last minute, the last night that they are, uh, that they are um, going to uh, uh, still be president is a flurry of pardons. And the question is, this really does pervert the, the idea of clemency. So how do you limit those, those, those uh, egregious pardons? And, of course, triggered by there is what? They, they have uh, limited downside. There, there are no, there are no um, uh, voters who are going to vote them out. My suggestion, people have suggested uh, uh, a, a constitutional amendment, but that will never get through. They're really hard. But many, many states who, whose governors have the right to pardon as well also have a pardon review board. And the powers of the pardon review board sometimes extend to they are the only ones who can suggest a pardon, which wouldn't work 
at the federal level, but they also can do an approval or a disapproval. And that would act like a speed bump on a busy street. So that if we had a pardon review board at the federal level, some of these egregious last-minute pardons might go away. It's been rumored, and I don't know that it's ever been absolutely proven, that there might be uh, a monetary payment made somewhere for some of these things, if not uh, in a political sense, that means uh, money to a PAC or a library or something like that, but for the personal benefit of the person making uh, the uh, the pardon. Uh, so if there was a review board, that would expose it to light. And sunlight, of course, is the best disinfectant, isn't it? That's correct. So I think, he, he, and th- by the way, this is, this is not just my suggestion. There have been many, suggest- many people suggesting it, but in my context, namely, the, there is a great tendency to grant clemency, and this is, related, this is not at the federal level, great tendency to grant clemency to murdered, to people who are on death row when the governor is in a second term. So uh, the president can't usually pardon a murder because it's not a federal crime. But governors can do that, and they tend to be much more lenient when they are lame ducks. And this, too, would be an example of downside protection, promoting risky, reckless behavior. You point out in your book that only two states, North Dakota and South Dakota, give governors the same degree of unfettered discretion as the federal Constitution does. A congressionally mandated pardon review board could not override the president's constitutional right to grant clemency, but it could, as you pointed out, uh, resemble a speed bump. Last-minute pardons that undermine the penal system while permitting safe passage to genuine acts of compassion, uh, that should be maintained, but not the the uh, things of letting people out of jail that were absolutely guilty uh, done by many juries uh, for the various crimes that they committed. Why should those people be able to get out of uh, prison? And a second term president might still include his own name on a list of last-minute pardons. But that hubris, as you point out, is more than collateral damage. It could create a constitutional crisis. Yes, and nobody's done that yet, even though there was speculation in the case of Donald Trump. No one yet has tried to pardon themselves, and there are constitutional scholars who say it's possible for a president to pardon themselves, although there is disagreement. And if a president tried, I am certain that there would be a fight, that president would have a fight on his hands. Well, the uh, Supreme Court this past year, uh, in saying that uh, tax returns and other business records could be released because no one, not even the president, is above the law. And therefore, my speculation is, if a person tried to uh, uh, give themselves a pardon, a pardon that would not go over well. Uh, 
And that the Supreme Court, as we both know, is now a 6-3 conservative liberal um, majority. So if they have said that no man or no person is above the law, I'm not sure that uh, whomever tried to pardon themselves would get away with it. I, I, I think that's the case, but we're not sure, and we don't want to go there. No. I had an attorney tell me once, uh, if you can negotiate a settlement before going to court, that's the best thing to do, because once it goes to court, you have no idea what's going to happen. Absolutely correct. Well, while we're on uh, politics, let me add one thing, and that's that uh, many elected office holders are perusing a Hail Mary with a big downside. They are paying fealty to Trump and by promoting the big lie, risking not only their jobs but their careers and giving Democrats, by taking over their previously held seats, the ability to pass legislation that undoes the harsh voter suppression laws that have been passed, but also to increase the Supreme Court with more liberal judges if necessary. What do you think about that? I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure what the question was. So okay. I, I can't. I mean, so isn't I, this? I, I'm, I'm not quite sure uh, how this fits. To tell you the truth, well, uh, many of the top Republican office holders are promulgating the big lie that Trump won the election. And they keep on saying it over and over and over again. And yet the polling is showing that fewer and fewer people are agreeing with that. So that's a yeah. not a limited risk. That's a greater risk. Yeah, but, but that doesn't seem to be a case where they have downside protection. So I don't know whether that particular act falls under, well, they have downside protection, therefore they're going to take a big risk. So that's why I say it's not clear to me that um, uh, it, it fits this framework. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> let's go on from there since uh, sure. I'm going down the wrong pathway. Um, so... What you were saying, uh, let's see, is, uh, that's that, I'm looking for a page that I can't seem to find. Oh, okay, here it is. Uh, on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, the uh, Claudette Colvin was not considered to be the right defendant for the civil rights case that the people of Montgomery wanted to press. Uh, nine months later on, uh, on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks was. A lot of planning went, in, went into getting the word out. A boycott of city buses was planned and succeeded. So here, uh, Rosa Parks, who didn't want to get up from her seat in a white section of a bus in Montgomery, uh, what was her downside? As it turned out, uh, she paid a $12 fine, so that wasn't a big deal. But that was the beginning of the civil rights movement to the most, uh, to the most uh, extreme level that it had ever been done before. Is that not correct? Well, so uh, is an example 
of uh, at least in her in her mind uh, taking uh, taking a big risk. It really was a giant risk. Uh, the risk that she would be ostracized. The risk of of physical retaliation. Um, the risk that she would lose her job if she did not comply with the then uh, laws of segregation in Alabama. And yet she took the, a hard stance and refused the order by the bus driver. And by the way, bus drivers back then had semi-police uh, 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 rights, uh, some, some obligations, and uh, uh, she, she refused the order to move away from uh, a white section of the, of, of, uh, of the bus. And the reason she says uh, that she did that was, I just made up my mind that as long as we accepted that kind of treatment, it would continue. So I had nothing to lose. In her mind, she had nothing to lose, even though she could lose her job and eventually did, even though there were uh, threatening phone calls, she felt she had nothing to lose. Why? Because she was being mistreated and would continue to be mistreated. Therefore, she took a great risk, a great risk by not listening to not following the, the the law which was she had to get up from her seat she was not she she allowed herself to be arrested and the reason for that in not in my words but in her words is she felt as though she had nothing to lose so because of her words out of her mouth, uh, you felt that this was uh, an apt example to use, although uh, you see this as a great risk, which you show was proven. She did lose her job, and she and her husband were ostracized in Montgomery and then had to leave and go north. Well, yes, and, you know, she didn't know that she would have to do that, but in point of fact, anyone who had tried before was very harshly treated, including some people were killed. So uh, there was a, it was a great risk. But in her mind, the downside, she had downside protection. Why is that? I had nothing to lose. She said it. That's why, she, that's why an entire chapter in this book is devoted to Rosa Parks. Well, let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you. You're listening to Politics, A Love Story. Our guest today is William L. Silber, author of The Power of Nothing to Lose, The Hail Mary Effect in Politics, War, and Business. So we've just talked about uh, Rosa Parks, uh, who set off, I guess, uh, a pretty strong beginning in the civil rights movement in 1955. Um, now, we also have a lot of things in the medical crises and pandemic area. Uh, it is different trying an untested, unproven, possibly fatal medication to throwing a Hail Mary pass. 
if a person has been diagnosed with a fatal disease with no cure, why can't they be given an experimental drug? How can you lower the bar too much for people who are going to die anyway and for whom this is a last hope? The medical profession faces some dilemmas, doesn't it? Well, yes, and and uh, there's a, an entire chapter devoted to um, uh, uh, pandemics and medical crises. And we know that people who have fatal illnesses want to throw a Hail Mary. What's the Hail Mary? Give me an experimental cure. I don't care if I might die from it. And by the way, no one can blame them. No one can blame them for trying. However, medical resources are quite scarce. And that means from a general public standpoint, a president has to look at the greater good. What the president has to worry about is, are we prepared with enough antibiotics? Are we prepared for the next pandemic? And the government has to support these activities just like it provides for public national defense, just like it provides for national parks, just like it provides for anything which the private sector will not do. They're called public goods. And what that means is the president of the United States should not be saying, oh, you might as well take this experimental drug because you have nothing to lose. From his perspective, he should be thinking about, should we allocate more resources to antibiotics, to, pr to producing more antibiotics, to producing, a, to setting up a pan for the next pandemic? and saying, what do we have to lose by doing something that someone with a fatal illness has every right to do is a mistake. So presidents should be concerned with allocating resources to where they will do the most good. And that's the idea behind medical crises and pandemics. And it's created a big rift, rift in this country because uh, no one expects the chief executive of the country to be able to promote, uh, well, I guess it's a matter of uh, who you believe, of questionable products, uh, whether it be injecting into your veins or taking by mouth an anti-malarial drug that seems to have no effect on uh, the COVID a crisis, but you don't expect your leaders to be doing uh, or behaving that way, and it's created a big, a big rift here in this country. Uh, well, I mean, it, it may it may be creating a big rift, but what the the main point is that when the president, in this case uh, Donald Trump, said, you know, what do you got to lose by uh, by by trying hydroxychloroquine? Hey, he shouldn't be saying that. Because he's not a he's not a doctor. But the idea of applying what do you have to lose at the presidential level 
is a mistake because what he needs to do is think about the allocation of medical resources. Medical resources are scarce, and uh, the job of the president is to allocate them for the greater good for everyone, whereas each individual unfortunate person who is fatally ill, they should fight like hell to get even an experimental drug. There's nothing wrong with that. But the president of the United States should not be promoting that. Uh, that's true. Um, in your book, you also spent a, a whole chapter on uh, trading uh, various instruments um, uh, on mercantile exchanges or stock markets, and you talk about a group of Southeast Missouri University students who won the 2015 stock market contest for college students sponsored by TD Ameritrade, a brokerage firm with more than 10 million customers. The team of four beat 475 other teams, including those from the Ivy League and from business schools around the country. They turned a fictitious $500,000 into a million three in a month for a gain of 160%. A member of the team said that we had nothing to lose. If we end up losing all 500000 well, that's the way it is. We basically just decided to be as risky and possible as possible. Uh, now, in real life, where there is real money being used, uh, is that a moral hazard? Have we taken the risk out of the downside here? Well, you know, you you uh, you took away the punchline from me, Bob. I'm sorry, Bill. So the, the, the real question here is uh, under what circumstances do, do, or does it ever pay to approach an investment opportunity as a gambler. And we never want to gamble, for example, with our retirement saving. You don't put it all into one stock that may become a dog. What you do is you hold a well-diversified portfolio. On the other hand, when the circumstances give you downside protection, then it really does pay to gamble. And the example of that is this TD Ameritrade contest. It's the contest which, by the way, it's not that uh, there's fictitious allocation. There was a real profit here. Those The, the TD Ameritrade gave a, a dollar reward to the winning team the team that produced a portfolio that made the most money over a month's time. So you could lose that. That was real money that was at stake. And uh, in point of fact, this team from Southeast Missouri won the contest. No question about that. When they asked them, how did you do that? The captain of the team said, oh, well, we looked at this as, you know, we can take, we can get the most return, 
okay, by being really, really risky. What really means risky? So in the old days, that would be like uh, putting it all into crude oil. Hmm. Today, it would be like putting it all into Bitcoin. And the question, of course, is, does that make any sense to do that? And the answer is, in the TD Ameritrade contest, the only thing that was rewarded was the biggest upside potential. And what happens if you had the biggest loss? The answer was nothing. You lose. And what, what, the, what the team from Southeast Missouri uh, recognized was there was very big upside. You could win the prize. There was no downside. Why is that? If you had the worst outcome, the next to worst outcome, it all counts as zeros. So the right strategy for them in this context, because there was big upside and limited downside, like the Hail Mary pass, was to be as risky as possible. And by the way, investors who buy a very specialized financial product called a call option do the same thing. They look for the riskiest. Why is that? There's big upside and limited downside. You never, I'm going to repeat this a number of times, never, 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 one more never, never want to do that with all of your retirement funds. Why is that? Because there's big downside too. But if you are in a circumstance where you recognize big upside and limited downside, taking the risky investment is the right choice. You point out there were two individual traders uh, that took big risks. One of them killed off the company he was working for, and the other, uh, because it was better funded, uh, he didn't kill it, but he certainly wounded it. Uh, those two people are Nick Leeson and Howard or Howie Rubin. You want to talk a little bit about them? Well, let me talk about about Nick Leeson because that's the the uh, the Howie Rubin case is is a somewhat different. But Nick Leeson worked for a two hundred year old bank. It was called Barings. Barings was one of the most important banks in the world. In in uh, for two hundred years, they helped Thomas Jefferson. They helped finance Thomas Jefferson's purchase of uh, of uh, the uh, Louisiana Territory. They also were advisors to the Queen of England in the 20th century in terms of how to invest uh, the royal portfolio. So they were a very, very well-respected institution. They hired a trader by the name of Nick Leeson, put him in charge of the Singapore office and also allowed him to trade. Now, traders buy and sell for the company itself, for the bank itself, and they really pursue one objective. I want to get a big profit so that I get a big bonus. The bigger the bonus, the happier I am. I can go out and buy a Porsche. So they try to take a lot of risk. Well, what happens if they lose money? Well, the nature of, uh, 
trader compensation is you get a big bonus if you make a lot of money. And if you lose money, you don't have to repay the bank for your losses. So they have a great incentive similar to the Hail Mary Pass. They have big upside and limited downside. What's the worst that can happen? I lose a lot of money, they fire me. So you know what happens? I go to work for another company. It happens all the time. So traders tend to risks. Why is that? Just like Aaron Rodgers. He throws a Hail Mary. Well, the trader throws a Hail Mary by buying, by taking risky outcomes, much riskier than he would normally do if it were his own money. And that produces what you properly refer to as moral hazard. Why is that? Because the trader has a big upside to take big risks, but the, the consequences of those risks are borne by the financial institution. And if those risks turn out to be big and the losses are big enough, they could cause they could force that company into bankruptcy, which happened with Barings in nineteen ninety five. Nick Leeson lost twice as much as the capital of the entire company and a two hundred year old institution disappeared. That's the nature of the skewed payoffs, the big upside, limited downside of traders, which is why banks have great incentives to monitor their traders. And in the case of Barings, the bank just wasn't, wasn't doing a good enough job. And in many cases, when that happens, the taxpayers often have to do what? Bail out the bank if it's big enough. Barings wasn't big enough, wasn't too big to fail, so it failed. But when companies and banks are big, even though they have big losses, the taxpayer bails them out. And that's the consequence of big upside, limited downside, promoting reckless trading. Well, the thing that really uh, got me on that was uh, 10 years before, uh, Ronald Reagan, talking about uh, the Soviet Union, said, trust but verify. And Barings didn't do very much verifying, although I, you pointed out in the book that there was an auditor about to come and take a look, and uh, Nick Lee, uh, Leeson was quite worried about that. And then for some reason, that person was recalled and never did the audit. You're absolutely right. And the analogy with, uh, with uh, Reagan's, Reagan's statement, trust but verify, is perfect. Uh, what you really need in this case, because the incentive is to take big risks, again, because of big upside, limited downside, the classic Hail Mary example, you've really got to monitor the potential risk taker. Well, I'm going to compare two totally um, contrasting people, and that's going to be Aaron Rodgers, who started off this conversation with his throwing Hail Mary pass in a certain situation, and Hitler in World War II, 
uh, and the Battle of the Bulge. Would you like to lay that out for us? Sure. I mean, this is a perfect example of the collateral damage associated with downside protection. We already did this just now in the case of the trader who takes big risks, but others bear the costs. In this, ca in that case, it was the bearings, the the, the financial two hundred year old financial institution uh, was forced into bankruptcy. Far more important was when generals and dictators have the incentive to take big risks because they perceive downside protection, because they pre perceive they have nothing to lose. And in World War II, in 1944, after the United States and Britain invaded Normandy on D-Day, they swept across what had been occupied France and pushed the Germans almost to the banks of the Rhine. And Hitler was urged by many of his generals to sue for peace, to say, okay, you, you've beaten us. But the United States had said that we would demand an unconditional surrender. And Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda chief, said, aha, I can then convince every German that if they give up, the German nation would be finished, and therefore you might as well fight to the death because you have nothing to lose. Hitler then used that spin to take a great risk. It is now known as the Battle of the Bulge, and I compare it to a staggered boxer about to fall on the ground, and he lets loose with a huge counterpunch, which in fact glances off, the enemy, off his opponent. And in this case, what Hitler did was he planned a counteroffensive to try to punch through uh, British and American lines, and he imposed great damage on the German people, but he also led his troops to, to perform the worst atrocity on American troops during World War II. Because as part of the Battle of the Bulge, there was a massacre of POWs, prisoners of war, at the Belgian town of Malmedy, murdered almost 100 U.S. prisoners. And the reason they were killed was because the individual soldiers said to themselves, what do we have to lose? Either the counteroffensive will succeed, very, very low probability, or it will fail and we are going to be dead anyway. So here is a perfect example 
of downside protection leading a demagogue, Hitler, to take a huge risk, the consequences of which were borne by the German people as a whole, because there were huge deaths during the war, during, during the Battle of the Bulge, and it also inflicted the worst atrocity on American troops in Europe. That is the collateral damage of downside protection. And even if uh, Hitler's troops had been somewhat successful because they were trying to take over the work where almost all of their supplies to that area of Europe were coming in, that was one of the largest ports uh, that was uh, mostly undamaged. But even if he had gotten through, his troops had gotten through, there were still enough British and American troops that they would have cut them off and then gone after them in Antwerp. And I, I don't know that that would have been overall successful, but the risk is even greater because, you know, they were the, the men who committed that atrocity were tried and they were sentenced, but then and sentenced to death, but many of them had their their cases, uh, they were pardoned in essence. And many of them did not serve time and they committed that atrocity. That to me... Well, that's, well, that, that's absolutely true. That's exactly what happened. Uh, there, there was zero chance that this, um, that this uh, counteroffensive would have accomplished anything, which is why the generals... Uh, advised Hitler not to do it, but they they, they were powerless. He, he was the one who controlled it all, and he was not going to bear the costs. And in the end, the people who committed that atrocity they were uh, they were sentenced to death, but their their uh, uh, their punishment was commuted, um, and uh, and uh, they essentially paid almost no price for that great atrocity. So uh, this is an example. Uh, this is a, 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 I mean, the most egregious example of the collateral damage of downside protection. Hmm. Yeah, that was a sorry chapter. Um, I read it. I understood it. I thought that you did a good job in, in writing it, but it was... Uh, it left me very uneasy, and I knew a lot about uh, – I've read a lot of European World War II history, and I knew about the Eisenstadt's groups that went into Russia and were killing Jews, and this was the same – it was a group of those same type of soldiers, part of the SS, who did the atrocity. Uh, just terrible. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, look, it's a chapter, but it's a chapter with a lesson. Yes. We didn't I, – I didn't like – I didn't like writing it, Bob. How's that? <laughs> well, I can imagine I, I, that, Bill. My my grandkids said, how come you can write a chapter on Hitler? The answer is, he taught us another lesson. Right. Hmm. Well, <laughs> we go from atrocities in World War II and now to prison violence. That's another example and lesson that you want to teach us. Uh, and what's interesting is that people would think 
that convicted prisoners with life sentences uh, who have nothing to lose uh, might be the worst behaved. In fact, the, I, think, I think this was your example. If they kill a guard or another inmate uh, in a state without the death penalty, what will happen? They'll get another life sentence added on? Big deal. But what you point out is that the more reckless behavior in prison uh, is by the short-term inmates because they think they have nothing to lose, whereas the long-term inmates, they want a better life as long as they have to stay in jail until they die. Now, that's an interesting contrast. Could you explain that a little bit further? Well, sure. So most people have this notion that uh, life without life without parole prisoners, they're called lifers by those people, by, by most people who look at this carefully. So the lifers are going to be the most violent of all. And there are many, many individual stories of uh, life without parole, death row inmates or life without parole inmates who, are, who, produ- who, who cause uh, great, who, who, uh, great uh, damage to other prisoners, who kill other prisoners, including guards. Why is that? You were quite right. They have nothing to lose. Why do they have nothing to lose? Well, they're already serving a life prison. What's another life prison going to do? The answer is nothing. So you would expect lifers to be the most misbehaved. In fact, many, many guards, many guards and many wardens say the same thing. However, when you look at the objective evidence, and the objective evidence is you look at 10,000 prisoners and you divide them into groups of life without parole, 10 to 20 years, zero to 10 years, and so on and so forth, the prisoners who are lifers turn out to be no less, no more violent than anybody else. In fact, they are less violent than a shorter-term prison. And the question is, how is that possible? Why do lifers tend to behave better than shorter-term prisoners? And the answer is, Lifers, in fact, have more to lose than you think. They're going, to be in, they're going to be in prison forever, and they want to make the best of it. What does the best of it mean? They want an air-conditioned cell. They want to be able to, see, to have uh, privileged visits with their family. They want to become trustees to work in uh, in a uh, in in a in a less supervised environment, so they behave because are you ready? They have something to lose. Whereas short-term prisoners say, "What's going to happen? I'll get punished, but I'm going to get out soon anyway." So in this case, the whole thing gets flipped on its head. Lifers do have something to lose. It's not that they have nothing to lose, but the short-term prisoners misbehave because perceive their punishments 
as rather small because it'll be over soon. So here's an example of giving people something to lose can overwhelm the incentives that are provided by nothing to lose. And the proof of the pudding is lifers are not the worst behaved class of prisoners in the United States. Well, let me uh, take that opportunity to reintroduce you. You are listening to William Silber, author of The Power of Nothing to Lose, The Hail Mary Effect in Politics, War, and Business. And I'm your host, Bob Bashansky, and you're listening to Politics, A Love Story. So now we're getting near the end of things, and you bring up uh, the 9-11 terrorists. Um, and that is something that I think needs a bit of explaining. You get somebody like Mohammed Atta, a trained architect coming from a middle-class Egyptian family, and then when he goes to Hamburg, Germany, he becomes radicalized and is one of those 19 terrorists that crashed the four planes on September 11th, uh, 2001. Uh, what can you tell us about where the, the uh, bottom line is there? Well, uh, so many people view uh, uh, the 9-11 terrorists as an example, once again, of nothing to lose, because in fact, what they believe is that the, the, this world is just a temporary place. What they're really thinking of is paradise. So they have big upside if they, in fact, martyr themselves. The downside is they're going to die. Well, they, uh, they view that as simply an entry to paradise. So there, many people say, ah, it is the... Uh, Islamic religion, which in fact gives them this skewed payoff, big upside, paradise, little downside, why is that? They don't care if they lose their life. In point of fact, there are also suicide terrorists who are not religious at all. Uh, the, Tamil, in, in, uh, the Tamil Tigers is a perfect example and most of those Tamil tigers were females. And whereas in, this, in the 9-11, in, in, uh, there were no females. And the reason females, Tamil tigers, who are not religious, the reason, one of the reasons they enter into this uh, pact to be, uh, to, to, uh, to be uh, martyrs is, uh, suicide bombers, is that they, many of them, have been raped and have become outcasts in their uh, patriarchal society. And one way to redeem themselves has been to perform a suicide bombing for political purposes. That means they also have a skewed payoff. Why is that? They've already been ostracized by their patriarchal society because they were raped. 
and they can redeem themselves if they, in fact, become suicide bombers. So that, too, gives what? Little downside. They're already ostracized with big upside. So the real motivation of all types of suicide bombers is the skewed payoff, limited downside, unlimited upside. And that's what causes people to become suicide bombers, whether they are the 9-11 bombers or they are the Tamil Tigers who uh, um, who actually, one of whom actually uh, killed Rajiv Gandhi when he was on the way to become the premier in India. So it's, it's the asymmetric, the skewed payoff that's the proper explanation for the suicide bombers, the danger that suicide bombers uh, 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 present. And I guess one of the things that they feel is a freedom. And that's, I believe, why you included the lyrics, or at least the title of the song, Freedom's Just Another Word for Nothing Left to Lose, which was written by singer-songwriter Chris Christofferson and made famous by Janis Joplin. There is a certain yeah. freedom. I was just going to say that the last chapter of this book says freedom, freedom is is just what you get when you have nothing left to lose. And many underdogs in the sports world have used that mantra that what they can play the game with nothing left to lose. And they often cause great upsets. The one example which I'm going to mention is an old tennis player in 1971, Ivan Gulagang, who uh, was, came from a very poor Aborigine family. And she, in fact, won Wimbledon before the age of 19. And what she said was, things went, out for, went for me out there. Everything came off as I had nothing to lose. No one expected her to win. So she played with abandon. She played with freedom. And that was a, that helped her overcome the odds of an underdog. And staying with sports and tennis, uh, and I want to read a paragraph that I think is almost at the end of your book and then give you an opportunity to sum up for us whatever you would like. We have a few minutes left. After Venus Williams was diagnosed with Sjogren's disease in 2011, she didn't stop competing. At age 34, in June 2014, ranked 31st in the world, she entered Wimbledon with little hope, but made it to the third round. Pleased with her performance, she explained how she got that far. Trying to conserve is not the right mentality. You have to go out there and give it your all and just play smart. And then she said, I have nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to lose. As you point out, that's a complete recipe. Yes, it's a complete recipe. And you need more than nothing to lose. 
to succeed on a continuous basis because nothing to lose, you know, teams or individuals can win once. But in order to be victorious, you have to follow Venus Williams' complete recipe. She said, trying to conserve is not the right mentality. You have to go out there and give it your all and play smart. So, nothing to lose? Sure. But you've got to work hard, too. Both of those can produce victory. So, Bill, you've got about a minute or so to leave us with something you want us to learn from this book and what our conversation today. I'll leave the last words to you. So there are two things. There are two big takeaways. One big takeaway of this book is that nothing to lose produces a skewed payoff. Big upside, limited downside. That creates the incentive, the incentive to take big risks. And what you have to worry about, what you and I have to worry about is the collateral damage, especially when the person taking those big risks does not bear all of the costs. And the classic example was the Hitler Battle of the Bulge. On the other hand, we as individuals can use a nothing-to-lose attitude to help bring us success. But we also have to work hard. Well, I want to thank you very much. William L. Silber, uh, author of the book we discussed today, The Power of Nothing to Lose, The Hail Mary Effect in Politics, War, and Business. I want to thank you very much, Bill, for being a part of this show today and to sharing your book with us and these lessons that I think that uh, we will all take something away from. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bob. It was a pleasure being with you. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.